0: This is the Brickcourt Chambers Centenary Podcast. Hello, I'm Finn Pilbroke, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this centenary podcast series. It's 100 years since what is now Brickcourt Chambers was founded by William Joward. To mark our 100th birthday, we are bringing together past and present members of Chambers to discuss their experiences in practice, on the bench, and in all sorts of other places that a career in law has taken them. Through these conversations, we hope to celebrate past achievements, discuss current issues, and hear opinions on what lies in store in the future. In this third programme, I'm joined by two legal living legends, by two genuine titans of the law. Sir Sidney Kentridge QC was already known as one of the great advocates of the 20th century when he joined Brick Court Chambers in 1978. He joined Chambers after nearly 30 years of practice in South Africa, during which time he'd acted for Nelson Mandela in the treason trial and the prison trial, had represented the family of Steve Biko at the inquest into his death in police custody, and represented countless other activists and well-known anti-apartheid figures. Having moved to brick court, he was then one of the dominant figures at the English Bar, with a stellar commercial, and indeed also public, human rights and constitutional law practice, through to his retirement in 2013, having, in late 2012, celebrated his 90th birthday by appearing before the Supreme Court. Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, joined chambers in 1977. Famously described as the cleverest man in Britain, Jonathan took silk in 1986 and continued in practice until 2011. He too had a stellar commercial practice, which also widened out to cover public and constitutional work, indeed work in almost any legal field. In January 2012 he was sworn in as a justice of the Supreme Court, going direct from practice to the highest court in the land, and getting there in time to have Sydney appear before him on Sydney's 90th birthday. He retired from the Supreme Court in December 2018, having had, in his seven years in the court, an enormous influence on English law. His retirement has given him more time to dedicate to his other career as a medieval historian of very great repute. Indeed, or through his career at the bar, what many other people consider a full-time job, he published regularly and in 2009 won the Wolfson Prize, the UK's most prestigious history prize. I began by asking Sydney for his first impressions of Brick Court and the English Bar when he arrived in 1978.
1: I had already been practicing for many years in South Africa, so my main impressions were of, on the one hand, the the similarities between the two bars and the other, the differences which one had to adjust to. The, the main difference was that in South Africa we did not have clerks, whereas in London you have clerks. And not only did one have clerks at Bricourt, court but we had the clerks. Ronald Burley, who was the outstanding clerk, at the, it's as far as I could make out, and the thing about him and perhaps other clerks too, but he was the first clerk I'd ever had. He governed what I did and what I was going to do, and he formed my career for good and bad. I've always felt I owed a great deal to him for being able to come at a relatively advanced age and be a member of the bar, where when I arrived uh, I knew hardly anyone and hardly anyone knew
0: me. Jonathan, I imagine Burley was a fairly big influence on your career too.
2: Burley was a very dominant figure. He reduced even the most senior members of Chambers to quaking jelly with his periodic outbursts of fury at their failure to live up to some high expectation of his, he used to read every opinion that went out of Chambers personally, as a result of which he did actually know a lot of law, and it was not unknown for even the most senior members of Chambers to be rebuked for uh, making some mistake. I remember him rebuking me for having described the uh, Bermuda II Aviation Treaty as having been done at Bermuda in whatever year it was. You don't call these documents done? And I said oh yes you do and I showed him a copy of the treaty and it had at the end done at Bermuda. The next day I was passing the clerk's room and Robert Alexander, the most distinguished figure at the bar at the time, was being rebuked by Burley. Look here sir, you've described this Bermuda II treaty, he was writing for the other side, uh, as having been uh, signed and sealed at Bermuda. You don't say that about treaties. It's, you say, done. I've sent it back to the typist to be retyped.
0: <laughs> do you recall the first time you crossed swords with Sidney? Did you do cases with him, cases against him? I don't think we
2: did very many cases against each other. I recall only a case about... It was the It was the case that pushed the... Canadian brothers who owned uh, much of Docklands into insolvency. It was an Order 14 hearing but that I think is the only one that I can actually recall. There was also the uh, decision about the the case about the corporate status of the International Tin Council.
0: Indeed I think the Tin Council case is the one with 24 days in the House of Lords. 24 days
2: in the House of Lords and uh, Sydney uh, was there were so many parties, I forget who was against who, some of them had the same interest. Sydney was a very noticeable presence, but whether his he was adverse to my position or in support of it, I cannot now recall. I think we were on the same side, but for different clients. Gordon Pollock, uh, one of the more notable advocates of his day, uh, was uh, acting for the other side, and I think he had virtually the whole bar ranged against him that didn't prevent him from winning.
0: Mike Bulls recalls, uh, as uh, Stephen Ruttles' pupil, going to the House of Lords in Charterie, which is I think another occasion when you were against each other. Oh, uh, 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 And uh, telling the story that, at the end of your submissions, Jonathan, he was like, well, it's obvious, that's clearly what the answer is. Sidney stood up and gave his submissions, and Mike said, I've been utterly misled. How can I have been so misled? sydney 's obviously right. And then unfortunately you replied, and he was confused again. Uh, 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 so um uh, you I made an impression on him I, I think you i think you did i think you did lose it
2: happens to 50% of all litigants
0: yeah it, well i was going to ask you if you ever kept score in your cases against each other but uh, it doesn't seem like it no i have never kept score
1: in in any of my cases of my cases in either south africa or england but my general impression of my time at the bar and the bar generally is that if at the end of your career you can say that you won 51% of your case as you're ahead of the game.
2: Yes, I completely agree. Uh, it's also, I think, the case that if you care so much about whether you've won or lost that you keep a tally, you are not likely to have the degree of objectivity which makes a good advocate.
0: So, Sydney, I was going to ask you if you... Uh having appeared against Jonathan as an advocate and then appeared before him as a judge, how you found those two different experiences.
1: Well, I think we got on pretty well. I don't think we ever had a quarrel at the bar. And, well, it's very hard to say. All I can say is that in both of his characters he was very, very formidable, very formidable indeed, without being, uh, ever being aggressive or unpleasant. Uh, you knew you were up against it if you were against
0: Jonathan. So Jonathan, what sort of cases did you cut your teeth on? Because the juniors at the commercial bar these days may find themselves as second junior in large cases frequently and struggle to get advocacy experience. So what did you cut your teeth on and how should junior barristers go about learning the trade?
2: There was a lot more work for junior juniors when I joined chambers than there is now. We had in chambers a firm of solicitors who used to act for insurers of people who had uh, been involved in car accidents and they used to turn up every evening with about 20 briefs for very unprepossessing cases in obscure magistrates courts uh, around London Uh, and pupils in their second six months used to do those cases. That was very good practice but you did learn a, a fair amount about how to present cases.
0: So, Sydney, I imagine the cases you cut your teeth on, that you learned as a junior barrister dealing with, were a, a long way removed from the commercial work that Jonathan started with. Was it criminal work you started with?
1: Well, in South Africa, the bar was a very a, a really substantial bar in Johannesburg, but not of the size of the London bar. So there wasn't any room for real specialization. So at the bar, as a newcomer, and in your as your practice grew, you did every sort of work. I did criminal work, anything from th- fraud to murder. And one cut one's teeth really by doing the job, because there was no pupilage system in my day. You just you you went to the bar and you joined. Not wasn't called chambers where you joined a group of of advocates as they, we were called, and you picked up cases that other people couldn't do. Somehow you got known, and you started doing you started work, but you you did every sort of work, and you did virtually every sort of civil case that was going. The only sort of specialization was only specials as semi-specialization was in the field of patent and copyright. I did, I did quite a lot of that work, but uh, it was specialized only in that there were comparatively few barristers who did it, but you did it only as part of your practice, you were. You weren't a specialist in the sense that that was all you did. So from my beginning there, I did every sort of case.
0: And when you were starting out, who were the, the advocates that you looked up to, that you tried to ape or learn from? Where, in
1: Johannesburg? In South Africa, yeah. Oh, well, at the Johannesburg Bar, there were some really very great advocates. There was a man called Izzy Mazels, who was probably the best all-round barrister I've ever come across but particularly as a trial counsel
0: and if you wanted to take one lesson from him one thing you learned from Izzy Maisel to tell a law student now could you distill it
1: well I remember he taught me one thing he I mean and uh, he actually told me as, uh, as uh, about cross-examination and <laughs> it was very typical of him but it did, it actually didn't help me very much and i remember he once said to me the great thing about cross examining is that right from the start you've got to dominate the witness <laughs> that was that was no doubt right but
0: he never actually told me how to do it <laughs> And Jonathan, who were the advocates you looked up to when you were starting out?
2: Well, Bob Alexander and Sydney, I would say.
0: And how does one learn to be a good cross-examiner?
2: You learn by doing it, just like everything else at the bar. And uh, after you've done it quite a few times, you discover uh, which lines tend to lead you straight to the buffers and which ones might be productive. But I mean, the golden rule, I think, is probably not to dominate the witness. Uh, but to pretend to be his friend. Uh, Some witnesses, that's not possible. But if it is possible, it's the ideal.
0: Um, I I always have been told a very famous story, Sydney, about you cross-examining someone uh, uh, in the later years of your career, in which you appeared to forget the witness's name every time, uh, and the witness got more and more... Uh, rate at this until obviously towards the end of the cross-examination you slowly sliced him apart and he'd he'd got so cross that he didn't uh, he didn't notice it happening to him
1: well you know if anyone had ever asked me teach me cross-examination or teach us cross-examination or what do you do or how do you do it I don't think I could ever have given a, a real
0: answer it was
1: different with every witness
0: and do you think there are different skills for a Trial advocacy is against appellate advocacy?
1: Oh, yes, I think trial advocacy was was a skill of its own because uh, while the witness was was, uh, in the witness box, you had to try and sum him up as soon as possible. You, uh, you you would deal with different advocates in a different way. Some would you might try and be gentle with. Others you might try to dominate in some way. But, uh, you know, I, I remember re- reading books or articles on the art of cross-examination. I never found any of them of the slightest use. Yes,
0: I, I agree. Did you have a preference for... F- first for trial advocacy against appellate advocacy?
2: Well, I enjoyed appellate advocacy, but I made it a practice right up to the time when I left the bar uh, to insist that I wanted to do one um, serious trial every year just to keep one's hand in. I never wanted to be exclusively an appellate advocate, although in the last few years of my practice, that is what I did at least three quarters of the time. There is a difference even if there are no witnesses involved between advocacy at first instance and before an appellate tribunal. The main difference is that you never quite know uh, what the agenda is before the trial judge because it's still in his hands. By the time you get to an appellate court you can focus on what you say. Uh, The judge below got right or wrong. You have a, a much more precise target than you ever had before.
0: But one has to earn the right to be a person whose career is three quarters appellate advocacy.
2: I suppose it doesn't happen um, straight away. It's really the reverse of what Sidney described. He described uh, uh, being at the South African bar when you start off doing everything, and maybe as you become more senior, progressively do perhaps less and less. In England, it can be the reverse. You start off as a specialist in chambers that do only bicycle mortgages, or whatever it is that they do, Um, and you end up, if you acquire a reputation as an advocate, being hired to do absolutely anything, including things that you knew absolutely nothing about a week before. That's what's so exciting about it.
0: Well, that's all struck me as exciting, but did you find that an enjoyable part of your oh, career as you absolutely. ended up broadening out your practice?
2: Absolutely. There is nothing more enjoyable than treading on someone else's cabbage patch.
0: Sydney, we can't record a programme and not mention your work in South Africa and your role in many of the most significant political trials of the apartheid area. You have the unique distinction, I think, of representing three Nobel Prize winners, Chief Albert Lutuli, Nelson Mandela, and Archbishop, Desmond Tutu. Uh, and you've been immortalized on stage and screen for your role in acting in the in the Steve Biko uh, inquiry. Uh, now we could make many programs just talking about each of those. Uh, and I understand that there is a book coming uh, that will address them. So I wanted to ask you a slightly different question. Yeah. Did you see yourself when you were doing those cases uh, as part of a movement or just as a cab on the rank available for hire?
1: Well, in South Africa we applied we applied the cab rank rule, but it wasn't very difficult, you know. The politics there were very intense, and the, uh, except towards the end of my career there, I was never instructed by the government, and in the end, when I was instructed, it was only in income tax cases. And a lot of the cases I did were political cases uh, against the government. You know the way it, way it was that we had the cab rank rule, but in fact, you know the the government on the whole briefed people who were pro government, and uh, they. And people who were anti-government, i mean, like some trade unions, some individual politicians, briefed me in cases against the government. It was always an important part of my practice, but never, I'd say, a major part of my practice.
0: And one builds on that to then be instructed in the, the high-profile political cases. Well... Yeah. Do you felt you sort them out, or they sort you out, those cases?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I, I, I can remember how I came to do those political cases. My father was a member of Parliament, a very senior member of Parliament, and he was also a, a solicitor but uh, not very interested in the law. But he knew a lot of people in politics, you know, on the anti-government side, including a number of leading trade unionists. And I think it was because they knew my father that some of these trade unionists briefed me in cases for trade unions against the government, either as junior counsel or quite soon as counsel on my own. And that's how I came to be in those cases.
0: And in some of those particularly most famous uh, political cases, you could probably anticipate you're conducting a case where you can, with a reasonably high degree of confidence predict what the outcome of the case is going to be even before you've started. Uh, And how does that impact on you as the advocate?
1: That was often so, but not always so. There were, I can recall, one or two judges before whom it was impossible to win a political case against the government. But with many of them, whatever their own politics, even the people whose judicial appointments were regarded as political appointments, one went into court with the feeling that you could win and you often did win. I remember once a number of us, few of us uh, young advocates were having tea in Pretoria with a very elderly advocate who had once been a Minister of Justice in a nationalist government, and we were talking about some recent political appointments to the bench, and he said to us that when he had been Minister of Justice,
0: he had made many political
1: appointments to the bench. He said the trouble with the political appointment to the bench is when he's been there two weeks he imagines he got there by merit, and of course that had one of the aspects of that was that some blatant political appointments to the bench, when they were on the bench, showed themselves to be completely neutral and objective. I certainly remember at least one judge before whom I could never win a case. Against the government in a political matter, although usually I won them on appeal from him.
0: Well, that sounds for the most cases the best traditions of the independent bar and the independent judiciary. It was. Yeah, Jonathan, do you do you feel that in any of your cases you uh, affected political change?
2: No, n- nor do I think that that was my object.
0: And uh, to a young lawyer who is setting out in their career and thinks what they want to do is affect political change, what advice would you give them? Maybe don't become a lawyer.
2: Well I I suppose that's the logical conclusion one comes to. uh, I do not believe that uh, uh, lawyers ever really uh, change the political climate. Uh, I do not believe uh, that it is sensible for them to set out to improve the lot of mankind in general as opposed to improving the lot of their particular client Um, and I think that a world in which people took cases on and argued them on the basis that they wished to achieve political change is one which I would frankly not like to see. I don't think it's the proper function of the courts, I don't think it's a proper function of advocates. I think that it is the role of politicians to change the political climate, not lawyers. Some lawyers do very nicely as politicians. If they change the world, that's the capacity in which they do it.
0: I can see that. And so the, the example of Sydney's career in South Africa and p- putting the position or the, the true, or true facts of what happened to Steve Biko before the world may play a role in affecting change. But it's not actually the, the, the advocate doing it. It's just showing the facts to the world.
2: Well, I'd be interested to know what Sydney thought about that. Do you feel that you've that in any of your cases in South Africa you changed the political atmosphere either in South Africa or outside South Africa?
1: I don't think I changed the political atmosphere or the political situation in South Africa. I think in some of the work I did, I think it revealed to the outside world what was happening in South Africa and some of the realities about the government in South Africa, but it was never an an object. The only way to do it was to do your work as an advocate, and to be as objective as any advocate should be, and it just so happened that I was briefed for various reasons in some of these important political cases and it had that effect. But it would have been hopeless, apart from being unprofessional, it would have been quite hopeless to start off with the idea, Ah, oh, here's a case where I can make some political difference. The only way to do it and to achieve it was to be as objective and professional as possible. Sometimes it did have some, perhaps, Wider significance than the result in the case itself, but that was just a byproduct. I mean, if you set out to be a political advocate, I, I think it would be hopeless. I mean, the, the something that an advocate, is, in my experience, has a- always got to be able to do, in order to be an effective and useful advocate, is that he has got to realize that his client might just be in the wrong i mean when i was doing political cases in south africa i was always i mean i was always against the nationalist government in south africa but you know it wasn't i didn't have any moral difficulty about doing cases against the government but uh, It would have been absolutely hopeless to do it on the basis of the political effect you were going to bring about. The only way to bring about an effect was to do your work properly and professionally.
2: I mean, the point about objectivity, I think, is extremely important. When preparing a case, you have to be able to think reasonably sympathetically about what can be urged against your case by the other side. Because if you don't do that, you're never going to uh, have enough understanding of both sides of the case to try and push it beyond the centre line.
0: Well, You've got to understand it from the judge's point of view. The, the judge doesn't a- approach the case on the assumption that your your client is in the, in, in the right.
2: That's absolutely right.
0: So observe all the facts and try and see it from the, the third party's point of view.
2: I mean in that sense judging is not actually all that different from advocacy. All judges start from the answer and work backwards. Uh, they may differ in the degree of muscularity that they bring to the process of working backwards. The more honest ones stop when they see an obstacle. An advocate does exactly the same thing. Uh, He essentially works out what is the best route to achieve a result that is consistent with the facts and with his clients interest and um, he then endeavors to, uh, to decide what are the the strongest arguments that could be put against that in order to meet them. But both processes are teleological. They both involve starting with an answer and working backwards. The difference is that a judge has, is at liberty to follow his instincts in deciding upon the provisional answer, whereas an advocate is stuck with what is in his client's interest.
0: And what is the moment at which the judge works out what the answer that he or she is aiming for because the advocate feels that they're going to have the the ability to to influence that, but do you feel it's early in the process or ultimately at the end of everything, you have an answer and you then reverse, you work back from that?
2: It's usually in the course of listening to the argument. uh, It's sometimes later when you have a provisional view and you then try and reduce it to a judgment And there is, this applies to advocacy too, there is nothing like trying to write down a coherent argument for revealing its weaknesses, for where the gaps are. And sometimes you say as you leave court, I'm quite sure that X is right. And when you put down your reasons, you just find that you can't square the circle and by process of elimination it must be Y or possibly X for a different reason.
0: And, but that, in one sense, departs from the notion that the judge has got the answer in mind, the answer is X, uh, and then works backwards. Sometimes you find, you think the answer is X, but you get to the conclusion it can't be
2: X. It's exactly like the scientific method and the physical sciences. You start with a hypothesis as to uh, what seems plausible given the very general state of your knowledge. And uh, having started there, you test it by the increasing accumulation of evidence and, and legal argument, and sometimes you find that your initial idea just won't work.
0: So, so we can't, obviously, I mean, we've got onto the topic of judging and we can't have this conversation without talking about judging. Uh, at Sydney, I know you sat in the courts, the Appellate Courts of Jersey and Guernsey, and obviously in the South African Constitutional Court for a while, and Jonathan, obviously, you sat in the Supreme Court. Jonathan, do you feel you would have been well-suited to being a first-instance judge?
2: No. I think that I would probably have been quite a good judge of fact. But the problem about being a first-instance judge, and this is going to sound terribly self-indulgent, is that you spend an awful lot of your time deciding cases which, as a very senior advocate, you wouldn't have touched with a barge pole. And I think that I probably don't have the right sort of boredom threshold uh, to to warm to that that sort of work. At any rate, uh, I had decided well before the question arose of my joining the Supreme Court that I would not go to the bench Uh, and what changed my mind uh, was the unexpected possibility of my going to the highest court.
0: And and when you arrived there in the highest court, were you were you well received, or was there some jealousy and resentment of the fact that you hadn't served your time, uh, working your way up the ladder?
2: Absolutely not. In the Supreme Court itself, um, it's actually very difficult to be appointed to the Supreme Court if there's significant opposition within that court to your appointment, because the process of consultation with existing Supreme Court justices is a very important part of the process of appointment. Um, I uh, Never uh, encountered the slightest resentment or resistance to the idea of my sitting there. Quite the contrary, uh, I thought that it uh, that I felt extremely welcome. There was opposition among some members of the Court of Appeal, um, and many of them subsequently were kind enough to tell me that they felt that their opposition had been unwarranted.
0: And obviously we would all like to ask the sort of behind-the-scenes questions about the Supreme Court and the politics of it, but I'm sure you won't tell me about that.
2: Well, it depends how close to the bone you get.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, I was going to come at it a different way and say if there was one change you could make to the way the Supreme Court works, uh, what would it be?
2: I don't think I would make any changes to the way that the Supreme Court works. Obviously it works in a slightly different way depending on who is sitting on a particular case, on their particular personalities, so there isn't a single template for um, proceeding from argument to judgment that uh, that suits all cases. It's an intensely deliberative process and it's changed quite considerably since the Supreme Court was created. In the uh, Judicial Committee of the House of Lords, it was the practice, especially under Tom Bingham, for each judge sitting on a case to retire to his study and come out with a tablet of Moses at the end of the day, and you would then count up the the votes either way and work out who had won. It's not like that at all now. The way that it works now and works throughout my time, and it was really Nick Phillips uh, who changed this way of working, and his work was very much, in this respect, continued by his successor, David Newberger. The way that it works now is that we circulate drafts of opinions and drafts can undergo very considerable changes in the light both of what other people have drafted and of discussions with them which were very intense. In a difficult case where we were divided we would quite often have several meetings in addition to much more informal discussions of issues. There was throughout my time a difference between judges whose doors were habitually closed and judges whose doors were habitually open. The judges whose doors were habitually open, this was a standing invitation to drop in and discuss absolutely any current matter or indeed anything else, whereas the others one felt some trepidation before disturbing their peace. In the course of the seven years that I sat on the court, the number of open doors increased with every year that passed.
0: And to what extent then does the the personality of the judges... Uh, inform that process. If if actually everyone is divided, uh, then but uh, the, the personalities and the dis- of the disagreements between them will have some impact on the in- the outcome.
2: I don't know that the personalities of the individuals had all that much influence on the outcome. It certainly influenced their starting assumption as to how they instinctively feel that the case ought to be decided, but. All the judges who sat on the Supreme Court in my time, and I would say probably almost all judges who've ever sat in the highest court of the land, uh, had the sufficient objectivity to be able
0: to change their minds. Uh, and Sydney, you, you sat uh, for a while uh, in this constitutional court yes. in South Africa. Yes. How did that come about? Well, there, it
1: was a new court which followed the passing of a new constitution after the end of apartheid. When it was created, the president of the court telephoned me and asked me if I would like to be a member of the court. And that came as quite a surprise to me, because I was very happy doing what I did in London, and I, I, he could hear my hesitation. And so he then made another offer. He said, what would I say to coming and sitting as an acting member of the, the court during its first term, because one of its permanent members was abroad and wouldn't be back in South Africa for a, some months?" And that I was very glad to do. And in fact, I sat for the first two terms of the court as an acting judge.
0: Before then, had you thought about becoming a judge, or you always preferred to stay as an advocate? Uh, The
1: question never arose. (laughs) I was never otherwise asked to be a judge. In South Africa, although I did become a very senior QC, or SC as we called it, I don't know, I I was never in line to become a judge under the governments in South Africa. And uh, I was very happy as an advocate. By the time I came to to England and had become a QC and built up a practice as a QC, I was too old to become a judge, even if anyone had thought of appointing me. Well, they-
0: should have understood how many good years they would have got if they had approached you. But uh, uh, Jonathan, did you find your view on advocacy changed when you became a consumer of uh, advocacy rather than an advocate?
2: Not really. I've always been suspicious of excessive specialisation, and that was something that I noticed and very much struck me when I began to sit in in the Supreme Court. Uh, There were advocates who knew what was going on legally in the room next door and they were always the best ones and there were advocates who knew nothing except about bicycle mortgages if that was their specialisation and the latter category would tend to come into court with a grab bag of cases about bicycle mortgages from which to select without ever asking themselves what was the basic underlying notion behind these, were they different examples of a general approach of the English common law to a kind of problem? Now to ask yourself that question or to answer it, you need to have a much broader knowledge of the law than simply what you can get from studying one speciality. So although I've always been a specialist, I've always taken the view that you actually have to learn a lot from things that have nothing to do with your speciality. And you really notice that difference when you come to sit in the highest court of the land.
0: And do you fi- think that's your training as a historian, really? I mean, the approach to all of this is to accumulate as much knowledge as you can uh, and then uh, try and try and plot a way through it afterwards rather than starting with a little gobbit here and a little gobbet there.
2: Well, that's the way, of course, that one works uh, as a barrister as well. Yes, of course, it's, it's absolutely vital.
0: Yeah and been uh, having kept a historical output through the time of your career, do you feel that was doing more of the same thing, or do you think it was doing something different?
2: I think it is, although it is very different, the two things are related. That's partly because the English common law is an intensely historical study. It's a precedent-based system. The case law uh, of the English courts is like a microcosm of English history over many centuries. But it's also true for a different reason, which is that I think in order to be a good judge, you need a, a, a great deal more than the knowledge of life that you can acquire in the course of one lifetime. You need a lot of vicarious knowledge. Unfortunately, one lifetime is all that we are given. and. For that reason, it seems to me the great advantage of studying history is that it is an immense source of vicarious experience. And actually, most people's experience of most things is vicarious.
0: One of the things I must ask you about when we're on a historical topic is your home history library. Uh, Tom Adams says that is a question I have to ask you. So, what can you tell me about the home history library?
2: It's about 9,000 volumes of which I would say about 8,000 are concerned uh, with the history of the last four centuries of the Middle Ages. It's a wonderful tool, I like the sight and smell of it, but above all uh, I like using it. There's a world of difference uh, between having all the relevant books laid out on a table to study them simultaneously and going into a library waiting three hours for it to turn up and looking at it one at a time or even worse, having to study it on screen.
0: S- Sydney, uh, we're talking with Jonathan about history, and uh, uh, on the subject of history, w- when you were doing the cases for Mandela, doing the Biko inquiry, did you have any feeling at the time that these were matters that were, were making history and that 50 years on people would be writing books, uh, that Albert Finney would be appearing as you in years to come? Uh, did, did, that, did that occur to you at the time? Did you have any sense of that? No, never.
1: I had a sense of very often in the South African cases that they had a broad significance in South Africa, but I didn't didn't go it didn't go beyond that. I didn't uh, I didn't think of future generations
0: having any
1: interest in them.
0: So Sydney, looking back now at your full career at the bar. Are the most memorable cases, those famous South African cases, or or is it something else actually, a commercial dispute, a human rights dispute, one of the many other cases? Which are the ones that stand out in the memory?
1: They are the South African cases because some of them did have a significance outside the courtroom. For example, the treason trial, which ran for nearly three years, the difference it made was that the the leaders of the South African, of the African National Congress, people like Nelson Mandela and others, that they didn't go to prison. And it made not only a great difference to them, but I think it made a great difference to, to how the, what you might call the African Democratic Movement in South Africa developed. Because the people, the Mandela and uh, his colleagues, who were able to continue to operate outside prison, were leaders of a sort which, uh, you know, who, who if they'd been in prison, the the other potential leaders were simply not of their, their their calibre and their
0: philosophy. It would have been a different movement without them.
1: I think it could well have been. I mean, one of the great miracles of South Africa was that the change came without violence. And I think it came without violence because of the calibre and the philosophy, and one would even say the religion of the leaders. I do think that their acquittal in the trees and trials was of importance.
0: Jonathan, what if you were asked your most memorable cases, the ones that you will uh, come to mind at the end of the end of your days which would they be
2: I can't match uh, Sydney's experience of famous cases I very much enjoyed the last case that I did as a barrister which was it was the dispute between uh, Abramovich and Berezovsky about the uh, fortunes of the Siberian oil industry in the 1990s Russia. Um, It was a case of no legal importance whatever, but it was a case which depended entirely on a swearing match about what happened at meetings at which no one else was present but these two individuals. Uh, I cross-examined Mr. Berezovsky for nine days and I was happy with the outcome
0: for me the oligarch trials, and we all ended up doing enough of them ourselves, the interest was in the modern Russian history. Yes. I mean that the time period in which those individuals made their fortunes was fascinating. It It
2: was an extraordinary period in the history of any country that a country where all the assets of the nation for practical purposes were in the hands of the state and where they were systematically pillaged a relatively small number of people who became extremely rich overnight. Uh, In order to find anything remotely similar to this, you have to look at some of the more corrupt governments of the Middle Ages or the 17th century, people who made a fortune out of being government ministers. There's nothing else comparable. And in this country, thank God, we haven't had corruption on that scale since Henry Holland uh, was the paymaster general in the 1760s.
0: Slightly different topic, Jonathan. You, you've obviously become a very well-known public figure since retiring from the Supreme Court. Yes, I'm sorry about that. Well, uh, my question would be this. Do, do outspoken comments from retired judges reflect well on the courts they served? Should, should more retired judges speak out and on what sorts of issues?
2: I tend to agree with those who believe uh, that retired judges should avoid controversial statements. And you're entitled to say, well, that I don't seem to have been practising much of what I've just preached uh, over the last 15 months. However, first of all, after retirement, a judge is a citizen like anyone else. And secondly, there are some issues whose implications are so fundamental that it seems to me that there is a higher duty to stand up and be counted. Uh, I think that the subject on which I have become controversial, namely uh, COVID-19, has the implications very fundamentally to change the relationship between the state and the citizen in this country in a way that I regard as very unsatisfactory and dangerous. And I did not think that it was sensible to be restrained from talking about it. I would have been delighted If anybody else had taken up this particular role, I would then have kept my mouth shut. Uh, But it
0: didn't happen. Sydney, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for joining me this afternoon. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you both. We could have filled very many programmes with all the questions that we would all like to ask you. But thank you very much indeed. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this programme. You can find out more about this special centenary podcast the other podcasts in this series and 100 years of Brick Court Chambers by visiting our website brickcourt.co.uk or by following us on Twitter at brickcourt.